Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. The following episode contains extremely graphic material. Listener discretion is advised. Coming up on part six of The Miscreants, Maria Calambro is under the microscope of detectives. Does she know what her husband and brother were going to do? My impression is she's holding back and she's concerned about her safety and we have to overcome that. And we have to make us look worse than those people that she's afraid of, meaning that she could lose her child, um, she could go to jail, uh, she needs to be up front with us. In a devastating turn of events that remains to haunt homicide detectives and the prosecutor till this day. I'm Melissa McCarty. And I'm Kelly McClear. Welcome to Killing Dad Presents The Miscreants. Season two of our true crime series, Investigating Family Murders. With Alvaro and Duck now in custody, detectives Dave Jenkins and Ron Dreer, along with the prosecutor David Stanton, must piecemeal the crime spree and charges. Who did what? Who knew what? And for that, Maria Calambro is now in the hot seat. We all kind of breathed a sigh of relief, and I remember prophetically the detectives asked Leah to come down to the station, uh, to the homicide offices in Reno, and um, to give a tape recorded statement about what had occurred that evening and whatever, uh, so on and so forth. Now, Ben is sitting there at four years old. Under those circumstances, he's got to go with them. And so I remember being in the room and uh, talking to Ben because Leah's with the homicide detectives, sticks in my mind so clearly is. I remembered, hey, what kind of shoes are you going to wear? And he goes, oh, these are my favorite. And there's a pair of sneakers. And so he put them on, and I soon realized he doesn't know how to tie his laces by himself. So I remember bending down and tying his laces, and then them trotting off to the detective cars, and then I follow and watch the interview, the debrief, if you will, of Leah Calambro, with Ben sitting out uh, with some of the other detectives in the in the uh, office area. In the small claustrophobic interrogation room, detectives Ron Dreer and his partner with Reno Police sit across from Maria. She's hesitant to provide a statement, a truthful one. And there's no doubt that she's covering, no doubt. So it's a question of how do you turn somebody like that around to where they know they're in trouble, or at least they fear they're in trouble, they don't know what's going to happen. Okay, so we have to establish a rapport. And, and that's what we do. That's why the interview is so long. And if you talk to anybody that's ever sat down with interviews with me, you have to start like in uh, the genesis and, and build the entire case up from where these people are from and bring them all the way back to their lives and try and get them to understand that uh, what happened to those folks were wrong. We use actors to reenact the police transcripts showing the conversation between Maria and Dreer. It starts with Maria saying how lucky Duck was for gaining employment at U-Haul, and it wouldn't have happened if not for her. What happens when he goes to work for U-Haul? 
Well, I helped him because I told you he don't know how to read and write. And I helped him on applied application because he don't read or write. So I got him the job. In fact, I take that test for him. He passed it because of me. <laughs> so he worked there for several months. They cut his hours and he had problems. What problems? Money. He gambled all the time. He do not listen to me. He do it his way. He never gets mad, just mad about money. Because he's sort of like a man in the house and he wants to provide more money. Everybody leaves Duck alone because they know he's hot-tempered. One day his boss goes to get coffee and the woman threw a pencil near his head. And she gets mad and he say bad words to her. I think he got fired because of the fight. What happened when he couldn't get work or unemployment? He gambled because I get welfare. He gambled that, and it's how we paid our bills. As the hours passed, Dreer wasn't getting the information he needed, and he had to apply pressure. She was giving us all kind of BS. She's got a little child, um, so she has to worry about uh, being up front with us or or dealing with Doc Hun and and her brother who then the ability to come back and take her out. Maria, don't backdoor us. Don't go back and forget about why you're here. I know. I try to remember. What did you hear your brother and Doug planning? What kind of a plan? Going to be truthful with us. There's no point in life. Sounds like you did care and had love for Doug. Yes. Your love for your brother. Yes, I know. I'm protecting them. That's why. When does your brother tell you about the murders? That night, Duck did not come home. My brother, he's sort of panicking, and he go to the bathroom. I said, what's the matter? You know, because he was smiling. I thought he went gambling. How much money did he show you? He did not. Not show me money. He just smiling. Duck went gambling. He looked up to Duck? Yeah, because Duck is the older in the family, and you can see how we're young. So to my brother, Duff is like a father, husband to me, whatever you call it. My brother tells me they killed that woman and that man. I was shocked. I don't know what to do. Do I tell the police? Do I hide? Do I protect them? What side should I be on? I'm all confused. He says now he has to go away because he did that. Is he nervous at this point? I don't know. I told you. He keeps smiling. He's smiling. So that's why I don't take it seriously because he's smiling. I said, I don't believe you, you know. How much money did they have? They don't have any money because my brother said we lost. Then I said, you killed for somebody and now you got no money? Right. He said, because Duck gambled it away and now they got no money. I said, what are you doing? This is serious thing. I tell him, this is not a game. I said, you're still young. Now you kill somebody, you're going to be in jail forever. Duck, he was sick. He was sick because all the blood. He went to his mom's house. Maria finally opens up, revealing the details her brother shared with her. Duck said my brother did all the awful things. You're going to have to tell us exactly what he told you. Okay. He said my brother um, hammered a woman's head and the man. I feel awful about this. Go ahead. Duck said he was standing there, pointing a gun. And he said they did not want to kill the man because the man helped them get the money. The man is nice to him. But they said they do not want any evidence, so they have to kill the man. How did they kill the man? He said my brother did everything. 
the man telling them that um, he got children, he got a wife, he's young, he go to school, he go to work. I guess they got a hammer and he hammered it with that thing. I just remembered he said they put a stick in their back. I guess I was trying to protect them. I do not want any trouble. Like, maybe they because they killed those people. And in my head, I think maybe they're going to kill me too. What else did your brother say? That's, um, he said, damn. He said, that man took a long time to die. Damn, that man took a long time to die? Maria shares little about Duck's involvement in any of the crimes. You can see it in the interview with Maria. You can hear her saying what she's talking about, Duck and his involvement in this. It's just not Alvaro. She is just as afraid of Duck Hunt killing her as Alvaro taking her out. And I don't think Alvaro would hurt her sister, but I don't know. Duck and Alvaro are locked up, facing 80 felony counts. Maria is broke and has been given an eviction notice. Police are trying to help Maria and her four-year-old son, Ben, get on a list for low-income housing, as she is critical to their case. Days later, two phone calls come in within minutes of each other. One to Detective Dave Jenkins. We got a call from Los Angeles County Jail indicating that uh, Doc Wynn had attempted suicide while in custody at the jail there. The other to prosecutor David Stanton, who just sat down for lunch with his investigators. So on this fateful day, uh, I had issued grand jury subpoenas for people to come in and testify. And one of those subpoenas was for, for Leah Calambro. And I remember having lunch with uh, several detectives um, and I get a phone call from my investigator and she tells me, which is unusual uh, for her to call me concerned about what was going on. So what was occurring is she is at the trailer that we've been talking about, the, the, the trailer home for everybody in Reno and she's knocking on the front door and no one's answering. And her concern is, is she tells me, look, Dave, I'm here. There's no sign of anybody coming to the door, but there's plenty of signs that their vehicles here and that people are inside, but I don't hear any movement and I don't hear or see anybody. And I, she goes, I'm really concerned about this. And I go, well, that's odd because at this point, Leah has been nothing but cooperative with us. I was concerned enough because my investigator was concerned enough that I sat there and said, hey, guys, let's go over to the trailer because my investigator just called and she's, she's uh, got an odd feeling about everything. So we go over there. They knock on the door. No one answers. And then the detectives, um, and there were three or four of them, along with my investigator and myself, enter the trailer and we were not, or I certainly uh, was not expecting to see what we found when we went into the trailer. Upon getting the notification from the, the sheriff's office in Los Angeles, we went out uh, specifically to check her welfare uh, in light of the information. And uh, 
found that the trailer uh, was locked. Uh, it appeared to have been uh, secured from the inside. Uh, Maria's car was parked in the driveway. We talked to some neighbors uh, who reported not having seen her uh, that day and that uh, they were unaware uh, of any other vehicles aside from the one in front of the trailer. So after repeated knocking, uh, Detective Douglas and I uh, forced entry into the residence and it was at that point that uh, we found Ben, uh, the four-year-old boy murdered and his mother in grave uh, condition after she had slit, uh, slit her wrists and attempted to commit suicide. I remember seeing was Ben Calambro lying on a bed and what struck me was two things. Number one, the way he was dressed and number two, he wasn't moving at all. Uh, and I had known Ben, obviously not well, but I had tied his shoe the night very early in the morning, uh, the only time I had met him uh, during the hostage situation, and I thought the young man was a, was a cute young boy. Um, and so I had seen him before, talked to him, interacted with him, and he is lying on a bed with his arm stretched out and he looked, although I didn't have the initial impression of this, but when I studied it closer later on is he is, I think, purposely laid out in the form of what you would see of someone on a cross with his arms outstretched at a uh, 45 degree angle or 90 degree angle from his body, uh, straight out, both of them. and. He, with his legs uh, stretched out, and then he was dressed in what I would consider or describe as um, church clothes. Uh, dressed uh, like you were going to church in a young man's or close to it suit and tie. Um, and he had a rose, a red rose placed across his chest. And when I saw him, number one, uh, after the initial kind of puzzlement and he's not moving, then I'm sitting there going, uh, this young man is either injured or he's dead. And as I got closer to him, he was very pale looking. And then I noticed quite uh, almost immediately is on both wrists, his left and right interior wrists, there was a large incised cut um, wound, gaping wound where I could see tissue and ligatures underneath of it. Um, and obviously very concerning at that point. And soon after me observing that, I heard some commotion from the other room and the detectives had discovered Leah Calambro in her room. And when that scene was uh, a complete bloody mess and the initial assessment was is that she was dead as well. There was very little, if uh, there was no blood around um, Ben, which forensically was very unusual and somewhat startling to me. So he splayed out with what would be normally referred to as inside wounds consisted with what some people would say, although, you know, someone committed suicide by slashing the wrists. Obviously, I don't think you know, based upon his age, that suicide is something that we're dealing with at all. And so that's not 
when I'm thinking about him, but there's no blood anywhere in the room with Ben uh, at all, let alone associated with two open wrists um, as he's positioned. So that is unusual and is not normal under the circumstances as I observed him. Same thing happens with Leah, that she has slit her wrist, but her room, as would be more normal, is just covered in blood. There's blood everywhere on the bed, on her, and she's curled up in a ball uh, in a fetal position on the bed, and she's not moving. There's blood in her hair, her hair is covering her face, and I (laughs) and a few homicide detectives had incorrectly assessed that she was dead as well. And then someone came in and I don't, I wasn't in the room, but they either through the pulse or through something else, probably touching her, they would have found that her body was warm. And then within a quick, quick period of time, someone had shouted out or they didn't yell, but had said in a, in a louder voice, she's still alive. And I go, you're kidding me. And sure enough, um, through successful medical intervention, both on scene and later on, uh, as it turns out, Leah survived that. Uh, but the, one of the big tragedies in this case is that Ben Calambro was indeed dead. While Jenkins and Stanton were inside Maria's trailer witnessing the horror, Ron Dreer gets a call. All I know is that I get the phone call again and that... Um, Maria has been found. They're taking her to the hospital and that there's something wrong with Bing. And it turns out that we find out that um, he's frothing at the mouth. He's been poisoned. And that I go over to at what that time was Washoe Med, which medical center, which is now renowned hospital. And that she's there and she's in the ER and I go in and I say what's going on I see her in there she's got a wrist cut and they are trying to uh, do something with her Um, she's bleeding at the wrist she's moaning oh poor me and all this other stuff and I'm thinking you just (laughs) because I know at that point I you just killed your kid and and I think that's terrible why would you do that but that's what I'm thinking. So I have a micro cassette recorder and I immediately turn it on and I start interviewing her. I just tell her that obviously we need to find out what happened. We need to find out right now what happened. What happened to your son? What happened to you? What's going down? At which time she then provides me with a statement as to what she did and what she did to her son. And I believe that she made a pack with a duck to kill herself and to kill her child. And so she poisoned the child. I can't remember what what she gave him, Um, but she did something. He was throwing up and she's going to kill him to get him out of the pit. She doesn't want to leave him with anybody else. So trying to be consoling with her was difficult because, you know, (laughs) she just killed her kid. So um, I, I was interested in getting as much detail from her as to what occurred and what she did to her son i remember interviewing being and feeling bad for him and thinking he's going to be okay i mean you know he's with mom and we're not arresting mom and she's in the room 
Uh, those guys are in, in custody. We tell her, for example, that, you know, you have nothing to worry about. They're not going to get out. They're not going anywhere. And thinking that everything's okay. And from this end, it's not, I, you know, in my mind, <laughs> it's the next day. And I keep thinking it's the next day when and she killed that little boy and she she poisons him. An innocent child certainly could in no way have done anything to deserve what had occurred to him. Uh, it was heartbreaking in the sense that uh, Maria had built a little shrine for Ben and had actually uh, placed him uh, at the foot of this shrine inside of her house as he was dying and uh, and before she uh, tried to commit suicide herself. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it is unbelievably tragic and specifically for a child. I, I don't know that, uh, well, it's, it's just unbelievably sad. I had come to believe that her religious belief was such that she truly believed that uh, she would be reincarnated again and be with Duck again on the other side. Um, and I, I have to believe that uh, she believed that she would see her son again on the other side. Uh, that doesn't justify or excuse what she did at all. Uh, and I don't think she was crazy, uh, mentally insane. But I am firmly convinced that uh, in her belief system, she believed that this was not the end. It's an image decades of time have been unable to fade for the three men. Pretty effective because, I mean, we buried him. I buried him not, not long after that. And you think about what that little boy went through, especially with knowing that he was just in the room with me the day before. And I'm thinking, why in God's name did you kill that little boy? There's not a reason in the world to do this. He's a little four-year-old. But in the investigation of Ben's murder, which it clearly was, we are quickly in the investigation advised that there are recorded jail phone calls and letters between Leah and Duck during this time period. Duck is in the L.A. County Jail uh, facilities, and there is concrete evidence of a suicide pack discussed between Leah and Duck that in essence boils down to, let's all die tonight. You take Ben's life, you take your own, and I'm gonna take my life here in the jail cell in Los Angeles, and we'll see each other in the, in the hereafter. The only person who died from their failed suicide pact was their four-year-old son, Ben. We've obtained the letters Duck wrote from his jail cell to authorities and to Maria. It's more of a statement from Duck. Yeah. Huh? To whom it may concern, I, Duck Wynn, wish to confess that when I came to jail in L.A., I called my wife Leah in Nevada and tell her to kill my son and to kill herself as I try to do the same to myself on the same day on my command at 11 p.m. Because my wife is too young, she didn't know what she is doing. So when I tell her to kill my son and herself, she do it because she loves me, because I am the man. On this day, the 22nd of March, I will fully confess to all the actions above. Sincerely yours, Duck. 
Wow. Uh, I remember that letter, and there's some very important things in that letter to me as you read it that I forgot all about. A um, couple things. Number one, let me answer your question first. Is that a defense? Is that letter from Duck to the authority, to me, to a jury, to the sentencing body, a defense for Maria to assert? And the answer is yes, because if you believe from that letter that Duck had kind of by his force of personality and the fact of their culture and their relationship that he's the man and that she obeys from that, the argument is made that she's not willfully, intentionally, and with premeditation killing Vin on her own, but she's acting under the influence of another party in such a relationship that weakens the state's theory that she's acting on her own and that she's, in fact, a puppet and that Duck is the puppet master. So yes, it's a defense, not what I what I would characterize. It's not an absolute defense that would be a verdict of not guilty, but it's a defense to the degree or to the mental aspect of first degree murder, which is really what the way they can win, quote unquote, win in the defense of Leo Calambro. Here's what else he wrote. Um, that was an attachment, I guess you will, to a letter he wrote directly. And it says, hello, honey. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I was very happy to hear from you. How are your hands doing? I also know that you feel hurt and sad in there and guilty for Ben. But what is done is done. We have to continue being strong for each other because you know that I love you, Leah, and miss you very much. As for everything in the trailer, it's gone. I could not do anything to get the things out. Leah, I want for you to know that everything that has happened between you, Ben, and I is too late because you're in jail, I'm in the jail, and Ben is gone. And when I cut myself, I was in the hospital two and a half weeks. Leah, please write a letter to L.A. or Law, I'm not sure who that is, and tell him to go see you in jail. He does not work on Mondays and Tuesdays and tell him to... safeguard the bracelets you have but first you must sign a property release form and tell him to give you money and to send me money leah please take this letter to your lawyer when you go to court always remember that i love you be strong and continue to have faith very practical very pragmatic um whatever they have when he's talking about their belongings everything that they have of value is in the trailer and obviously that's all gone. That's all repos- uh, not repossessed, but it's put into storage and then it's, you know, storage wars thing where it's sold and whatever. And so the things that they have of value, I guess, is bracelets and they want that money put on their books when so they can, you know, buy commissary and stuff when they're in the, the jail. Very pragmatic, very logistical. Maria Calambro was tied to her gangbanger thirst for violence brother and petty criminal common law husband and father to her son, Ben. Was she a victim of these two men? Did they control her choices? My impression of Leah from the time that I saw her is a strong one and a distinct one. And that is, I did not find her to be a very emotional person or compassionate person 
outside of that very small circle of her family and friends. I don't consider her a person to be someone that anybody should have a tremendous amount of compassion for. Uh, she did not exhibit that, I believe, in her life that I'm aware of, and certainly not to her son. Um, whatever your thoughts may be about her culture or her relationship with Doc and her brother, for that matter, she was an adult. She had things in her life. She was able and capable of thinking on her own. And the decisions she made in her life were uh, done clearly with a free and unfettered and uncluttered mind. There was no disease of mind. There was no history of physical or psychological abuse that was documented in any way. Um, even in their trial and in their defense, other than, you know, kind of the, what you would expect to be a subservient to Duck. Uh, I believe it was argued from both a cultural uh, and a pragmatic uh, series of events. But the, the typical things that we see of battered women syndrome that are properly used as defenses to state of mind or an absolute defense, uh, especially in murder cases, none of that existed here. And so I have uh, very little, in fact, no sympathy for Leah Calambro at all. Now all three separated by bars and in their own mental prison. Coming up on episode seven of The Miscreants, Stanton moves fast to push for death penalty convictions, but this battle would take some bizarre turns. And I said, well, you're an evil individual, buddy, and that's fortunately why we have this uh, death penalty. It's for people like you. 